time for Legally Speaking. Joined as always with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Always good to have you here, and hopefully my voice holds together this week. I know last week was a little rough. My apologies. I'm feeling much better now. On the agenda, number one, sentencing a man known as Cameron Hardy to one year in jail for contempt of court. That's not something I see very often. You're quite right. Uh, this is a, a good story. Uh, it's a case out of Prince Rupert, and I should say when you get a, a criminal case, or really any case, there is at the top of it ordinarily a style of cause which shows sort of who the parties are in the, in the case. And this one is styled as Rex versus Cameron Hardy, also known as a man known as Cameron Hardy. <laughs> and so what is that? What's going on here? Uh, the background of it, it started all the way back in May of 2021. Uh, and the police were called to a local liquor store where two men were refusing to wear masks. So it was right at the beginning of COVID. Uh, and uh, the police wound up uh, dealing with the, eventually the person, the man known as Carmen Hardy. Uh, they identified him by a firearms license that he had in his possession. Uh, and uh, he was uh, refusing to wear a mask and refusing to leave the store and eventually wound up in a wrestling match with uh several RCMP officers that involved, that wound up down on the floor and one of the officers' watch is getting pulled off and uh, broken. Uh, and uh, eventually the man wound up getting uh, arrested for obstructing the police officers. So that's how the case started. Uh, things did not go well, however, as uh, the uh, individual arrested uh, was somebody who uh, subscribed to a version of what we, I think, have mentioned before, this concept of free men on the land. There's this group of people who have come up with this sort of cockeyed theory that they're not human beings subject to laws uh, in Canada. Uh, and this fellow was one of these people. Uh, and so, for example, after he was arrested, uh, the, uh, the desire was to release him, to come back to court to deal with the uh, obstruction charge. But he uh, would uh, do things like uh, refuse to sign the paperwork to be released, uh, prompting him to appear then in front of a judicial justice where he would uh, begin yelling things like, you've kidnapped me, you've stolen from me, you've abused me, <laughs> and would not answer uh, questions. The, the theory, I guess this sort of cockeyed theory, is that the person is not a human being, but they're somehow something else that's not uh, required to uh, adhere to uh, any laws or requirements. Uh, and uh, the individual eventually, after multiple, he stayed in jail for several days because he wouldn't uh, uh, put on a mask to walk down to appear in court. He wouldn't sign anything. Uh, and eventually he introduced himself as a man commonly known as Cameron Hardy by special appearance. Hmm. I guess he's got some theory that uh, he's some person who's commonly known by that, but he's not a person. Uh, and things did not go well uh, for this individual. Um, eventually, he would refuse uh, any assistance. He would refuse to get uh, any legal advice. He would, uh, in court, uh, repeatedly just speak over the judge, read uh, various nonsense in court, uh, refuse to come into the courtroom. Um wouldn't answer anything. Uh, eventually, uh, various judges wound, wound up uh, uh, concluding that uh, a not guilty plea should be entered and a trial date would be fixed. 
but then uh, there were a total of four trial dates when the man would do things like uh, show up but refuse to come into the courtroom or come into the courtroom and then uh, begin reading sort of monologues of nonsense and over-talking the judge and mm. refusing to participate in any meaningful way. Yeah. So that eventually led to the judge determining whether the man was in contempt. Uh, and there are a couple of things to be known about that. First of all, the man was being tried in provincial court, right, which is where most criminal cases uh, occur uh, in BC, except for very serious ones. Uh, and the provincial court is a court of statutory jurisdiction. The authority of the court arises from statutes like the criminal code. And that's different from the superior court, which would have some inherent jurisdiction to do things like find people in contempt who are not complying with court orders, right? That's where we have all these contempt proceedings when there's a court order and it's not complied with. That's not an authority the provincial court has. To the extent it has any authority to do something, you need to find uh, a statutory basis for it. But Section 9 of the Criminal Code uh, which is a section uh, that provides that you're, you're not subject uh, in, to being convicted of common law offenses or uh, breaches of the Acts of Parliament of England and Great Britain, sort of on the theory of reception of law at the time of Confederation. However, it does specifically say that nothing in this section affects the power, jurisdiction, or authority that a court uh, judge, justice, or provincial court judge had immediately before April 1st, 1955, to impose punishment for contempt of court. And so there is a statutory authority that remains, uh, or there is authority that remains because of that section, for the provincial court to punish somebody for contempt in the face of the court, which is a different thing Hmm. uh, from somebody who's like not following some court order, right? Like, for example, if a provincial court judge placed somebody on a period of probation, that's provided for in the criminal code. If somebody didn't follow the probationary orders, the person could be charged under the criminal code with, you know, not following the probation order. And there's a whole section dealing with that, right? A provincial court judge couldn't say, I find you in contempt for not following my probation order and sentence you to jail. That's not a, a power the provincial court would have. But the conduct of the man known as Cameron Hardy occurred in the face of the court, like in the courtroom, hmm. right? Okay. And there is, it's necessary that a court's going to have some capacity to control what's going on in the courtroom. Otherwise, you wind up with somebody like the man commonly known as Cameron Hardy, able to you know stand in the courtroom and just yell things out or refuse to be quiet or interrupt everything, and there'd be no way to stop it, right? Yeah. And so... Provincial court judges do have that authority to punish summarily for uh, contempt in the face of the court. And so the judge dealing with this wrote a very long decision. It's 43 or 69 pages long, uh, detailing the entire history of this man and what he had done in the face of the court uh, to intentionally interfere with the court's process and make uh, arguments, which the judge described as this is pretty blunt, his arguments were not merely legally false, but often just being stupid. <laughs> uh, uh, There's some no useful jurisprudence. That's right. He had no hope of success. Thus, logically, his only purpose was to frustrate the court and waste government resources. He was truly the author of his own misfortune. Ultimately, the court tried to do things like appoint an abacus, like a lawyer to sort of represent him, 
uh, or not represent him, but argue his side of the case, tried to explain things to him, but the man had no interest in any of that. Uh, the judge then went on to sort of think about things like, look, is this a mental illness? Uh, and hmm. concluded, no, it doesn't appear to be a mental illness, right? Even though what the man's doing, um, you know, sort of flies in the face of what most people would view as reason. Um, concluded, no, this man seems to have sort of adopted this uh, cockeyed philosophy of being not a, a man, not a human being, but a man known as something. Uh, and so found, no, it's not a mental illness. Uh, it, it is simply somebody who's engaged in contemptuous behavior in, in the face of the court, and he sentenced the man to one year in prison with the message that that kind of behavior is unacceptable, uh, and to send a message to other like-minded individuals that doing things to intentionally sort of defy the court, interrupt it, repeatedly waste days in court, read nonsense, uh, do all of these various things, which the judge found in part he was doing to a sort of audience of other sort of like-minded people. That was entirely unacceptable and needed to be deterred, and others needed to be deterred from uh, following that path. Uh, And so one year in prison for the contempt. He was also, interestingly, just found guilty of the uh, obstruction count. Uh, which the judge took pains to sort of explain and have amicus and so on. Yes. On that count, interestingly, the Crown took position that he should be sentenced to three days in jail because he's not going to follow any other order or period of probation. The man refused to provide any information at all about himself or his background. The judge, interestingly, on the obstruction count, wrestling with the police officers, declined to add a uh, three-day jail sentence and instead found that he should be treated like anyone else without any previous criminal record who had engaged in that conduct, and it would not ordinarily attract that conduct to jail sentence. Yeah. And so instead, imposed a period of three months probation with 10 hours of community work service, uh, which is very interesting, right? That clearly the concern here was, you know, the reason for that long sentence was to deter uh, the sort of contemptuous behavior that this man has engaged in by his nonsense conduct uh, since uh, that uh, event back in 2021, uh, but uh, the uh, you know reason dictated that you know that didn't impact what the appropriate sentence would be for the underlying wrestling around with the police officers and pulling the officers' watch off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see what the man known as Carmen Hardy chooses to do with his probation order, whether he's gotten the message uh, that uh, he's going to need to comply. Uh, and I should say, he will start the probation order once he finishes his one-year jail sentence for contempt. And so it will be interesting to see whether that period of time has caused the man to focus upon uh, the need to comply with the uh, orders uh, of the court and not engage in uh, nonsense intended to interfere with the process, or whether the man commonly known as Carmen Hardy finds himself back in front of a judge uh, if he doesn't complete the community work service. So the tale of the man known as Carmen Hardy may not be over, and it will be interesting to see whether the sentence imposed was sufficient uh, to drive home the message that you do, in fact, need to comply. You are a human being, and the laws apply to you. Um, And so uh, that's the uh, tale of sentencing a man known as Carmen Hardy. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. 
Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, I know that's some uh, story that has been mentioned on our open lines, and it's certainly one that I found less than satisfying with the outcome, but I'm hoping you can help us understand it. A man accused of being a shoplifter who stabbed a security guard in Campbell River and a finding of not guilty. What happened there? Well, first of all, there's no doubt that there was a very serious crime committed in Campbell River. Uh, as the uh, judge explained in, in his reasons, uh, the facts there included uh, a individual coming in disguised, wearing a wig and a mask and glasses and so forth, came into a Walmart, uh, used a shopping cart, was loading television sets into the shopping cart, and then wound up stabbing a security guard, threatening another security guard, who happened to be the first security guard's wife, and that'll be relevant in a moment, um, uh, threatening other people, and then fled the store, um, finally throwing away the televisions here in a uh, yard. Uh, and wow. uh, the case was made, the issue in the case, really the only issue in the case, was whether the Crown had proven beyond a reasonable doubt whether the man who was arrested and charged later was the man who committed the crime. Uh, because what happened, the reason the accused got arrested is some hours later, uh, the accused was found near where these TVs were disposed of, thrown away, uh, and he was arrested. The other fact that uh, led to him being arrested was that he had tattoos on his arm uh, that seemed similar to tattoos in a video taken of the person who committed the crime uh, who was in the store. Okay, so that was really the case against this person. There was nothing else. Um, the case was made more difficult by virtue of the fact that there had been a power disruption at the store, uh, resulting in there being no video footage from the store available, from their store security system. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the police tried taking, uh, searched for fingerprints and all the things, but found nothing. Hmm. And so the case turned on a combination of what I've just told you about, that circumstantial evidence, person was near where these TVs were disposed of some hours later, and a similar tattoo on an arm. Now, the other piece of evidence, which was interesting, and this is, a, uh, I think, sort of a cautionary tale about the impact of media coverage of cases before there's a trial and the impact of social media. Hmm. And it was uh, dealing with the evidence from the, the security guard who was stabbed. His wife was also working as a security guard. Yes. And she uh, had picked out the accused from a photo lineup uh, and identified him in court, right, as saying, well, that was the person. Wow. But here's the problem. Uh, she, uh, of course, this person in the store was uh, wearing a wig, mask, sunglasses, <laughs> right? Oh. Uh, and the uh, person who picked this fellow out of the photo lineup, the wife, a fellow security guard, indicated that when she gave a statement to the police at uh, close in time to when this occurred, she indicated that uh, she did not know the name of the person uh, involved, right? Mm -hmm. Thought it might have been somebody who would come into the store on other occasions. But then uh, there was all kinds of media coverage, including pictures of the accused. Ah. Uh, she was posting online about this event and what happened to her husband. Pictures of the accused were posted online. Yeah. Then what happened is the woman came and gave further information to the police saying that, oh, yes, she had another job prior to the Walmart one where she did uh, patrols, car patrols, you know, looking um, like might be hired by downtown businesses to keep them safe from 
uh, people who might uh, do harm. She did that kind of work. And then she said, oh, yes, she knew this person. His name was Nate. Uh, that's how she knew him, and she was familiar with him from all of her work, uh, dealing with him on multiple occasions, uh, spotting him doing, well, working in this driving security job, completely inconsistent with what she'd said the first time. Hmm. The police asked her, uh, and she was asked in court whether she had looked at pictures of him online, and she gave sort of this equivocal answer to that. The judge concluded uh, that the only inference that could be drawn by her uh, after her first statement, concluding that she knew this person from previous dealings, right, and was therefore able to identify him by his eyes, uh, was simply not reliable. Hmm. Uh, and that her evidence in that regard, well, perhaps understandable, she might have persuaded herself that she was able yeah. to. Yeah. Obviously, she had a traumatic experience. She was there. Her husband was stabbed, could have died, right? Yeah. An awful traumatic experience. So he was careful to, you know, sort of in an understanding way. So you look, it's understandable. She may have persuaded herself that she could identify this person. But given what she initially said, and then how her story about that changed, uh, which then led to this identification, the judge found that her evidence was simply not reliable, that he just couldn't rely on this picking out of the photo lineup uh, or the in-court identification. And so what the judge was left with uh, was the fact this man was found near where the televisions were some hours later. So that's something, yeah. right? that's circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Furthermore, uh, he had uh, tattoos on his arm, which were similar to uh, some tattoos which were in a uh, video taken by a bystander. But the judge said, look, I, I can't exactly compare these things. I don't know how common those tattoos are. I've got this sort of, you know, bystander video that shows some, some tattoos on a person's arm. Yeah. And then the descriptions by other people who were in the store, like there were other sort of bystanders around, yeah. were descriptions like, well, he was roughly five foot eight or five foot ten. Somebody else thought he was six feet tall. Uh, they, they thought he was between 16 and 20, one of them. Uh, because his voice was that of a punk-ass kid. Mm. <laughs> so that was the kind of description he was left with. And the judge concluded that because he could not rely upon what the wife was describing, he simply could not be satisfied uh, that the only reasonable inference from the fact that this man was near where the TVs were sometime hours later, yeah. right, or that he appeared to have a similar tattoo, just wasn't enough. Yeah, there was a reasonable uh, doubt so that they'd arrested the wrong guy. Yeah. And that's why he was acquitted. Hmm. Um, and so uh, it it really does bear careful scrutiny as to what went on here, because sort of on the face of it, you have somebody saying, I'm outraged, I was stabbed, my wife identified him, found him in a photo lineup, what could possibly be the problem? Yeah. Uh, and it's an example of why we're very fortunate to have sort of a careful, reasoned analysis as to what's going on, uh, right, it goes on for 41 pages, um, you know, carefully analyzing, well, what can you properly draw from what evidence is there? And those little bits were certainly enough to be suspicious, uh, but not enough to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's also a, a cautionary tale in terms of how pretrial publicity can sometimes undermine uh, evidence ultimately at a trial. And so, um, you know, that there's a difficult weighing there because many of these things are of, you know, very significant 
uh, interest, right? This is a really serious activity, right? Somebody was stabbed, they could have died. It's outrageous. And so it's certainly understandable why that would get the attention it did. Uh, and it's also perfectly understandable how upset the person was who was stabbed, right? Yeah. Uh, of course, everyone wants a, a neat ending to it, uh, but this evidence just uh, wasn't enough to get there, and that's why we had the result we did. We have uh, just under three minutes remaining, Michael. Supreme Court Justice Brown retiring immediately. Your thoughts on that? Well, this is a first, a legal first, right? He, he of course, was the uh, Supreme Court judge who was accused of wrongdoing uh, at a, or having an altercation uh, at a conference down in Arizona. Uh, he was uh, alleged to have uh, been in a drunken state and following in an unwanted way a, a woman back to her room and getting punched. Mm. <laughs> there was much disagreement between the just, former justice and the uh, about that, yes. and there was an investigation that was ordered uh, there's provision to uh, investigate the conduct of a judge. That investigation was literally about to commence. Uh, and I think the day that the investigation proper was going to commence, Justice Brown resigned um, and or retired. Um, and it's an interesting outcome. His lawyers indicated that they had evidence they thought uh, would contradict the claims originally made, including uh, they had uh, say they had obtained video footage depicting the entire interaction uh, and some evidence from the bartender uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, that's the outcome. The other interesting thing about it is that the authority of the judicial council that would conduct the investigation uh, ends uh, on the judge's retirement. So they don't have any authority to continue the investigation. That's different from some other professional organizations, like, for example, the Law Society in British Columbia that would regulate uh, lawyers. Yes. Uh, they are not deprived of authority by somebody just popping up and saying, I resign. <laughs> uh, they could carry on uh, you know, with an investigation, come up with a decision. They can impose other uh, penalties, fines, or prohibitions on somebody practicing in the future, other things they might think would be appropriate. And, of course, you would get some answers which might be important for the public in terms of confidence in the administration of justice. So one of the queries here I think people should think about is, would it be appropriate, because there are some changes to this investigative process currently being contemplated, would it be appropriate to permit a continued investigation into the conduct of a judge even when there's a resignation? Right to sort of figure out was yeah. there some impropriety here? Was there not? Indeed, uh, you yeah. know we're all left sort of wondering what happened here, and uh, you know you're left wondering with hey, you say you have some video that contradicts what happened. Where is that? We're not seeing it. Um, everyone's left in a bit of a quandary. So uh, clearly a, uh, a problematic event, and sort of on a personal level, uh, you know uh, Justice Brown had some connections to Victoria, having practiced here personally, and yes. so. Uh, that's really not uh, not too good. I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. And obviously, it's going to be a difficult thing, I'm sure, from a personal and family uh, perspective. So uh, that's the, at least for the moment, an end of that tale. And we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens. We'll have to be an appoint, appointment of a replacement. And we'll wait and see whether and what changes happen to the process to investigate these things uh, in the future. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, here on CFAX 1070 during the second half of our second hour every Thursday.